Well, welcome to another episode of the Bukari Sellers Podcast. Today, we have someone who has had an amazing career, and you can actually add amazing author uh, to that as well now. I, I have a lot of people I know in my orbit who write books, and not all of them are good. Um, this one, though, is good, and we will get to that momentarily. But Deborah Lee, how are you doing today? I'm good. So great to see you, and I'm so honored to be on your show. Well, I'm honored so thank that you, you. you're taking the time out on the grind as you go through this book grind. Yeah. So my show is unique in that uh, to start each episode, we have our guests walk us through the arc of their careers. And I know we'll cover mm. this in a bit when we talk about your book, but talk to me about your legal career before joining BET and why did you choose to leave your firm at the time to join the team at BET? Well, um, I went to law school and I hated it. <laughs> and I knew I would. Um, I always wanted to be a fashion designer, but my dad wasn't having that. And I just mentioned he's he was an army officer. So yeah, whatever he said went. So I ended up going to law school um, uh, at Harvard. Um, hated it so much that first year that I applied to the Kennedy School and, at Harvard. And I thought that would save me because that would give me an out and I could do government service. And I was always interested in public policy and, you know, helping my community in whatever way I could. Uh, so I got a master's in public policy. I graduated uh, in 1980, went to D.C. to do a clerkship with Barrington Parker Sr., uh, which kind of just fell in my lap. I didn't want a clerkship because I didn't want to be a lawyer, so I never applied. Uh, but a uh, judge I was working for uh, part-time in Boston said, I have this judge who's looking for a third clerk. Why don't you go interview with him? So I interviewed, I got it. So that took me to DC. And then I had uh, previously accepted a job with the SEC policy mm -hmm. office, the Securities and Exchange Commission, because I was always told that was one of the best uh, policy offices in government. But I put that on hold while I clerked. And while I clerked, uh, Ronald Reagan won. Uh, and that sort of killed my government career. Quickly, uh, quickly. I, I didn't want to go into uh, a Reagan administration. Um, so I decided to go to Steptoe and Johnson, which was a, a firm I had interviewed with uh, earlier in my um, legal career. Uh, and I said, I'll go there until the Democrats come back. Well, if you recall, you're a little young, but <laughs> it took 12 years for the Democrats to come back. That was one of the longest stretch of uh, Republican uh, presidents uh, in my history, and, in, and especially in the time I lived in D.C. Um, so after five years, I said, I, I got to get out of here. I don't like law. I'm just biding my time. It doesn't look like the uh, Democrats are coming back anytime soon. Um, so I started, by that time I had started doing communications law, FCC law, which I really enjoyed. I liked uh, media and broadcast, uh, even telephone work. I did a lot of that. Um, and BET was a, a, a small client and they were located in DC and I started doing work for them. Uh, and then I started interviewing in New York with corporate uh, media companies. And I didn't really wanna move to New York. You know, I, I was very comfortable in DC. My dad was originally from DC. Um, so um, in, in the midst of all that, um, I was helping Bob Johnson with the uh, apply for the cable franchise. And um, one day we were, um, he was having hearings before the um, 
uh, city council and there was a um, lunch break and he said, let's go to lunch. And the partner I worked for, a guy named Ty Brown, who used to be FCC commissioner, went back to the firm for an hour or so. And Bob and I went to lunch and over lunch, he said, you know, would you be interested in coming mm. to BET and starting the legal department, which completely blew me away because I didn't know they could afford a legal department. I knew they couldn't hardly afford outside counsel. Um, so I said, you know, I'll think about it. And, you know, the rest is history. Wow. Six months later, I went over to BET to start the firm. I mean, to start the legal department. The partners at Steptoe thought I was falling off the face of the earth because DC didn't even have cable at that time. So people were like, you're going where? BET, what? what? <laughs> uh, and it was risky. And I, I write about this in the book. I, my dad, who used to love coming to visit me at the law firm because they had wood paneling and big chandeliers. And, you know, he thought I had made it in the legal world. Um, and he asked me why I would leave such a place <laughs> as Steptoe. And I said, oh, I'm just not having fun anymore. And he looked me dead in my eyes and he said, Deborah, if it was supposed to be fun, they wouldn't call it work. So needless to say, he did not approve of my decision at that time. Over time, he did. He you know, learned more about BET. But so that's how I got to BET. And then when I got to BET, I remained as general counsel for about 11 years. Uh, but I enjoyed that work because I was doing it for a company I believed in. And uh, even if it was Xerox machine uh, contracts or Donnie Simpson's contract, you know, I did it with the same effort and uh, enthusiasm. Um, but then I eventually moved to the business side. Yeah. So you transitioned from your role at BET as chairman and CEO of BET Networks almost five years ago now. So what have you been up to since then? Well, I have been very busy. I took about two weeks off and uh, bored me to tears <laughs> sitting, sitting on my deck. The first thing I did, I moved to uh, L.A. Uh, because both of my kids were here at the time. Um, so I left D.C. after 37 years, uh, moved to L.A. Uh, I stayed on uh, corporate boards that had always been an important part of my career and my life. Um, so I, I was on three. I wanted to keep it to three. Uh, Procter & Gamble came along and I finally went on my fourth. But so I have four uh, corporate boards. I have several not not for profit boards. I wrote this book. That took me over two years. Uh, I started a company called Monarchs Collective to help get more people of color on corporate boards. Good. After George Floyd's death, I just said, we got to solve this black wealth problem. And yes. one way to do that is to let more black folks know about corporate boards and know you can create wealth by doing that. Um, so I started that company. I have a foundation called Leading Women Defined. Uh, I've been doing annual summits for about 14 years. Uh, and I bring prominent women of color together because I found the further you went up the ladder or in the organization, the lonelier uh, it, got, yeah. it got. And especially as CEO, oh my God, you have no one to talk to. You can't talk to the people that report to you because, you know. You may have to discipline them or terminate them. Or, I mean, you know, you have friends and you have favorite ones, of course. Um, and, you know, in my situation, there weren't a lot of Black female CEOs. So I started this organization and I just invited the 100 most prominent Black women I knew in every 
area I could think of. And it's really turned into something really magical. The women look forward to it each year. They support each other. Businesses have been started out of leading women to find, you know, women have gotten jobs and, and most important, they've gotten supporters that they can call, if not in their industry, in another industry and they form friendships. So uh, I think that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot. Let's talk about this book. I am Deborah Lee. First, as we talked about briefly before the show, I did not know you were born in South Carolina. Right. Um, and you were raised in Greensboro. Correct. And um, had about four or five different moves in between, but ended up in Greensboro with yeah. my dad. And Green, Greensboro, actually, my um, I was born in Moses Cone Hospital. I went to Vandalia Elementary School. Um, my brother went to Allen. I mean, Vandalia Elementary School. My brother went to Allen and my sister graduated from Dudley. Um, so, so did I. Yeah, so did you. So I was right. going to talk about that. So talk about your formative years and what it was like as a Black Southerner transitioning from a Black city like Greensboro and a Black high school like Dudley to Brown and Harvard. Wow, those are really good questions. Um, in between, Germ well, in between South Carolina there and, and Greensboro, there was Germany, uh, four years in Germany, two years in DC. My dad taught ROTC at Howard. Uh, then we moved to Compton for a couple of years. And then when my dad retired, we moved to Greensboro. And Greensboro uh, was such an enlightening move for me, an inspiring move, because it's the first time I've been in all Black environments. And you well know <laughs> that um, even though some Southern cities were segregated, some of them, like Greensboro, had very um, well-established Black communities and Black businesses and Black schools and Black churches. And so it was, you know, we led, led a middle-class existence. Um, I, I started going to Black schools. Uh, the first day of sixth grade, I was elected president of the class because <laughs> I think mainly because I was that weird girl from LA. Um, and it was just, the first time I really been pushed, you know, yeah. to be great, to be a leader. Uh, we were proud of alumni from Dudley, like Curly Neal with the Globetrotters and Bernie Sanders. I think he played for the Detroit Lions, Clarence Avant. Um, oh, yeah. And so I, I really found a self of uh, a sense of identity that I didn't have before, especially moving around a lot. And I love my school. I love the, the people. My mom worked at Moses Cone. She was a ward clerk. She actually started at L. Richardson. Okay. I got my start at L. Richardson as a candy striper. <laughs> but my mom was a ward clerk and she went to Moses Cone, but she never complained about it. And I know it must have been tough because that's the only reason you would go to a white neighborhood if yeah. you had a job over there. But she never complained. And um, and so my dad had a sister. He went to Dunbar High School, which very uh, respected black high school in DC. And in the thirties and forties, they had a lot of alums who went to Ivy League schools as quiet as it's kept. So my uh, aunt Laura, his sister went to Mount Holyoke. So she was okay. like one of three students in Mount Holyoke. So because of her experience, uh, my dad who never 
finished college, wanted me to go to Ivy League school. I was the youngest uh, child. And so he kind of drilled that into me. And um, then when I was applying, I applied to Brown, Cornell, and uh, Yale, which is very unusual for a Black student in Greensboro. Uh, Yale rejected me, which I hold it against them to this day. (laughs) And I wouldn't go to law school there because I was still mad at them. But Brown, uh, they sent these Black students to my high school. They had perfect froze and they were so smart. And uh, I ended up going there. And it was it was the right decision. Um, I was telling this story the other day, Brown itself was still pretty segregated. You know, oh, wow. they had this, yeah, in the, I, I started in 72, they had this big influx of black students. Um, you know, it was really when board Brown, board, Brown versus Board of Education was taking hold. Um, so we had enough, we had like 500 out of 5,000 students. So that's enough to form your own community and to room together and to sit together. We used to all sit together in the um, cafeteria. We wouldn't bust our trays because we felt like after 200 years of slavery, we shouldn't have to do that. So, <laughs> you know, looking back on it, it was one of the stupidest things I ever participated in. But anyway, the, the trays would pile up so that there were no seats by the end of the meal time. All the people that worked in the cafeteria were black. So who were we really hurting? Yeah. Uh, but the, it was a thing. It was a thing. You know, we were uh, black students at a white university and we had to do something. So I think my junior year, um, the students took over University Hall, the black students. But luckily I was over in Southeast Asia on a year abroad. Um, but anyway, it was it was scary. I saw white students um, coming to class and uh, coming to Brown with computer printouts, which I'd never seen before. You know, they were coming from Choate or Holt or whatever, all the private schools. Um, so it wasn't until I got my grades for my first term papers and exams that I realized I was being competitive, that, you know, I had a, enough of a foundation from Dudley High um, that I could be successful at an Ivy League school. So after that, I kind of calmed down and made friends and partied a lot and studied Chinese communist ideology. Those are the two things I always say people don't know about me, that I'm from Fort Jackson, South Carolina, and that I st- studied Chinese communist ideology um, Don't get college. your book banned. Hmm? I said, you're on a, don't get your book banned, Miss Lake. Don't, that's a good point. <laughs> Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at globalxetfs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. 
we've interviewed authors on this show uh, because I think after you've uh, written a book, um, uh, especially a memoir, you walk away with a lot to talk about. And this may be a weird question, but what did you learn about yourself in writing this memoir? And why did you write it now? I had an opportunity to interview Cicely Tyson on a Monday. And it was the last interview she did while she was alive. Oh. She died on Thursday. Right. And I asked her, why did she write it now? And she was 90 some years old. Right. And right. I remember. And all of her grace looked at me and said, I was waiting to have something to say. And I wow. just thought that was so profound. So yeah. what did you learn about yourself as you were writing it? And why now? Yeah. Well, let me just say Cicely Tyson was a good friend of mine. And it was so sad that she just had those first couple of interviews to talk about her book. And I did read the book. It was wonderful. But she was such an inspiration always to me. Um, but I decided to write the book. OK, two stories. One, I was at a uh, dinner party with Vernon Jordan over uh, his stepdaughter, uh, Tony Cook Bush's house. And Valerie Jarrett was there. And they used to have Sunday night dinners every week while Valerie was at the White House. And this one Sunday, they invited me. A couple of Sundays, they invited me. But this particular Sunday, Vernon and I were talking. We were exchanging stories about the segregated South growing up there, about you know schools, about our careers. And at the end of the night, Vernon looked at me and he said, Deborah, you should write a book. And I was like, wow, other people have told me to write a book. But when Vernon Jordan tells you to write a book, you kind of take it seriously. You listen. Yes. So that's when I really said, you know, OK, this might be a possibility because I always love books and I always wanted to do a book. But again, like Cicely, I didn't know what I was going to write about. Then when I several years later, when I stepped down from BET, I looked around and realized there were still hardly any Black female CEOs in the media business, in any business. I mean, they're, now there are two in Fortune 100 companies, the Sunda Duckett and Rosalind Brewer. And um, I said, this, it shouldn't be like this. You know, I had my head down working for years. And um, so I was like, I gotta tell my story. And I have to let young people know that um, we're all human. We all make mistakes. We all have challenges. And none of that should stop you from following your dreams. And I've always wanted to help others who've come behind me, whether it was when I was at Brown, at Harvard, whatever, at the law firm. Um, and I always felt like I was a pretty normal student. I wasn't mm -hmm. the brightest in the room. Um, <laughs> and But I worked hard. And I wanted others to know it's, it's, it's never a straight line. Um, it's never as pretty as you want it to be, but there are things that you can dream of and you can do it. Um, and so that's why I really wanted to, to write the book and I wanted it to be authentic and honest. It's um, good. And it is. So I can tell you this, I get a hundred books a year through mm -hmm. this podcast of authors oh, wow. on the show. And sometimes I even have friends that write books. And I can tell you this, that I don't tell on this show that everybody's book is good. We come on here mm -hmm. and we talk about it, but I don't ever say that every book I read is good. Yours right. actually is good. And it was unique Thank because you. I felt I felt some, it, it felt like when my daughter is, I have a 17 year old daughter, I'm gonna make her read it. But when my four year old daughter is of age, I want her to read it too, because it just felt so empowering. And, and mm -hmm. I don't know if I took away what I was supposed to take away from it. So what do you want readers to take away from your memoir? I want, um, I, I definitely wrote it with 
uh, young girls in mind, but I think young boys and men and women can can learn from it also. But I, I wanted pe- I wanted people to know my story. And I wanted them to be empowered because of it. And you're not the first person uh, who has said it's empowering. And in fact, the other person that said that to me was a, a man. And he yeah, told me. I, I, I was like, I, I, was like I, I don't know if this is written for me, but I, it's right. making me feel some type of way. Yeah. And he told the women at his company they couldn't read it because it was too empowering. Of course, he was just joking. But, but that's part of it. And I want um, women to know they have to stand up. And, and be heard. You know, I think we all have a voice. We all have to figure out how to use it and when to use it um, and, and what to use it for. But, you know, I, I feel like for so long, I was uh, quieter than I should have been. I was in rooms where I was, you know, a little intimidated. Um, you know, I was pushed in my career a little faster uh, and, and never knew I was going to be in business. So I had a learning curve, but I, I wish, you know, um, that I had used more of the testosterone if women have any testosterone, I don't know. But I, I just want women to know it's okay to speak up. It's okay to be a woman and manage differently and want a family and raise children and have a husband. And, you know, my generation, I feel was the first uh, female generation that tried to do it all. You know, I have an older sister. Let, and- me, let me ask, let me interrupt you and ask just a question about that, because okay, how did you and still do, and this is one of the questions that formulated from the book, juggle motherhood and professional obligations and success? Right. Um, Badly sometimes, <laughs> uh, but it's just realizing it's never in balance. You have to do what you have to do at the time. I mean, I took crazy red eyes back from LA to get to the Halloween parade that lasted 15 minutes. So my kids would know I was there for them, um, you know, and you just, you, you try to meet the needs that are there in front of you. And I had a lot of help. At the, in the height of my career, I have four people at home working for me. Mm. And I'm not, you know, ashamed Please, to say Ellen, that. Ellen, my wife, if she's listening to this, <laughs> Lord, she could tell me we need to hire some more Right. People. I had a house manager, a chef, a housekeeper, and a nanny. And I needed every one of them. And luckily, I had the resources um, to be able to pay them. But I want child care to be an issue that we focus on because women who have children, um, you know, if the babysitter gets sick one day and you can't get to work, what do you do? Um, So we need to address that issue more. Um, So it is designed and I hope it will be empowering, make women braver. You know, some people have said I'm brave for writing the book, which is a little scary. Uh, But, you know, we have to tell our stories. Michelle Obama said we all have a story to tell. Amen and I that. think that's true. Now, everybody not, might not read it <laughs> or it may not be written well. Uh, and I'm glad you enjoyed mine. But we all have a story to tell. And I am so proud of this book. And it took over two years. It was such an accomplishment. And uh, it's also therapeutic. It's also Amen. therapeutic. You know, I feel like that chapter of my life is now behind me. And I, I, I feel a little floatier. Yeah, me <laughs> too. I, I, I was like, look, I told all my truths in my book. So look, you can't shame me with nothing. I've already right. read about it. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. 
It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. But that's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. Let me ask you just a couple more questions before I let you go, because I cannot... Cannot let you go without asking this. For people who may not know much about how BET began, can you talk about the early days and what it was like to build BET? And for people who don't know Bob Johnson, why is Bob Johnson such a special figure in the history of American media and entertainment? Right. Um, Well, when I joined BET, it was five years old, maybe six years old. It started in 1980. I joined as general counsel in 1986, even though I started doing legal work for them earlier on. Um, The thing I loved about BET, I still love about BET, is when I joined, it was owned and managed by Black people. And Bob was instrumental in the visionary in saying um, this country needed a network devoted to black people 24 hours a day. When I grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina, you know what we had? One show, Soul Train, came on an hour on Saturdays. I had to do all my chores before I could watch Soul Train. Uh, And that kept us connected. And then, you know, the Temptations were on Ed Sullivan or the Supremes. We'd call each other and say, oh, Black people on (laughs) Ed Sullivan. But Bob said he was working at the um, uh, Cable Lobbying Association. And the story he tells is he saw a proposal for elderly people and he thought, this would apply to black people. You know, 24 hours of news and information and programming. And he did it before anyone else. And the thing I learned from him among many is that black brands are so important. Ebony, Jet, you know, Black Enterprise, Essence. I mean, we had a whole slew of magazines, but we didn't have any cable networks. And in the beginning, there were only 25, 26 cable networks. Now they're 500. Now you see more Black networks. But Bob was was a visionary for recognizing it was needed. He was a great businessman. He kept the cost low. He brought in the revenue. And, um, you know, he was interested in all aspects of African-American lives and put it on TV. And um, I was really excited, even though, as I said, we didn't even have it in in DC. I was just so excited to be working there and be helping to build. And it was always a first class organization. You know, everything Bob touched was like, it's gotta be high quality. The executives were smart. And, um, you know, there was just, we had an office in Georgetown. You know, what Black companies had an office in Georgetown? Um, so, you know, when we went places, people saw us coming. Uh, we were first Black company to be traded on a New York Stock Exchange, which was such a high. 
Um, and, you know, the people on the New York's the floor were high-fiving us, all the Black people who had never seen a Black company. Um, and, you know, along the way, we kept doing things like that, creating magazines or restaurants or film. Uh, and then when we went private and then when Viacom acquired us, I mean, the corporate history itself is worth studying. You know, when we went public, the, the stock opened at $17. By the end of the day, it was at $28, $29. And, um, you know, Bob became a, a billionaire when it was sold to, to Viacom. He made probably more Black millionaires than people give him credit for. Um, so, you know, he, he was a visionary and an icon. And, you know, I, I hope people continue to uh, study his story. Well, look, I, I could talk to you all day. There's some yeah. amazing things in there about the playbook for how Black women can navigate the workplace, specifically the C-suite. You mm -hmm. talk about reproductive health and fertility. You talk about uh, how many women in the workplace want to have a desire to have it all. There right. is a lot in this book that we cover, but I got to ask you the most important question, which is how can listeners buy the book and follow you on social media? All right. Well, the name of the book is I Am Deborah Lee. And that also happens to be my Instagram tag and my Twitter tag, so they can follow me on there. They can pre-order books. It's not released until May, March 7th, but they can pre-order books today from Amazon, Black, uh, Barnes and Nobles, Target, wherever. Um, and if you follow me on Instagram, all the information of the book tour stops and the ordering information is on there. But can I just say something about yes, reproductive rights? Because that's a story I want to be told. Please, I please. had it. I had an abortion before I went the summer before Harvard Law School. And when I look back on it, you know, I'm like, how did I do that? And the good news is I had the choice. It was three years after Roe versus Wade and I had the choice. And I went to New York and I had an abortion and I knew I wanted to go to Harvard Law School. I didn't want to be a mother. And it was, you know, with someone I wasn't didn't really have a relationship with. Um, so it's scary that those rights are being taken away right now. Uh, and that's another reason I wanted to tell that story, you know, and, wow. and I know the Planned Parenthood is trying to tell more stories and we need to fight to get that right back. Well, Deborah Lee, I love you. I am, I admire you. I'm glad you wrote your story. Thank uh, you. Shared by many uh, men and women alike. And so thank, thank you, you for joining the Bukhari Sellers podcast. It's a really dope book. Thank you. And I hope to see you in Columbia, South Carolina. Listen, I, we, I'm going to give you the key to the city. I'm going to go find a <laughs> key and give it to you. Don't even worry great. about it. <laughs> That's great. All Thank right. Thank you, you right. so much.